Good morning, um, and I'm glad that you're here, and and I hope that you've had a good week, and especially as we're entering into uh, this week, where we are going to, once again, follow the footsteps of Jesus, walk in his steps. We're going to walk, um, we're going to walk today through the gates into Jerusalem, and Friday we will walk the steps to the hill, and Sunday we will walk in his steps out of the tomb. And we're going to take that whole journey. And it starts this week. And so I pray, for, I mean, first, I guess, as, as, we, as we spend this time in the Word today and as you are going through this week, my prayer for you is to approach the week with intention. I mean, it could go like any other week, right? There's stuff to do. There's things you have to accomplish. There's, you know, bills to pay, mouths to feed, you know, stuff to get done. But I pray this week for you to have a sense of intention about why you are alive. Why you are God's child. Why you are moving forward in Christ. And that's kind of what Holy Week, this period of Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday and beyond is all about, is the why. And to get to the why, you have to start with... Um, the why that's been going on throughout the ages. This is why we've been spending this time in the Old Testament the last few weeks looking at these seeds of Easter throughout the Old Testament. And today we're going to talk about a subject that maybe we're not very familiar with. We're going to talk about wrath, which is interesting and difficult and hard. So we'll see how we do. If you happen to wander into my office uh, through the chaos, one of the things that will greet you on my shelves besides a mishmash of Star Wars and Denver Broncos memorabilia, is a boxed set of the complete works of Calvin and Hobbes, because it's awesome. Uh, without a doubt, my favorite comic strip ever. Uh, Farside and Non Sequitur coming in at close runner-ups, but still, Calvin and Hobbes is where it's at. Uh, and as I was reading through Habakkuk this week, kind of prepping for sermon, there was a specific comic strip of Bill Waterston's that kept running through my mind, and it's this one. Calvin is sitting on the swing at recess, and the playground bully, Mo comes up, okay? And, and see, this is the thing. Half the fun of the comic strip is the way that the author portrays different characters. Mo may be in elementary school, but he already has a unibrow, and he shaves more often than Jeremy Assishan. And his knuckles actually scrape the ground half the time. And he wants the swing. I mean, he, like, he is real politic made manifest. Okay, might makes right on the elementary school playground. That is Mo. And he wants the swing. And he says something. Get off the swing, Twinkie. He grunts, probably in like Brooklyn construction worker accent. In my mind, this is how this goes, okay? And Calvin exercising both manners and morality paired with proper assertiveness calmly states, I'm sorry, Mo. I was already using the swing. You're just going to have to wait your turn. After which he is promptly launched off the swing and into the next panel when Mo's massive fist meets his face. And lying there in this heap of semi-conscious pain, 
Calvin gives voice to the prophet Habakkuk's central complaint, which is this. It is really, really hard to be religious when certain people never get incinerated by bolts of lightning. (laughs) See why I love this comic strip, okay? You've got your mows. I've got mine. There are entire countries, entire systems of government and economics, world trends that have the name Mo stamped on them. There always have been. And they and the problem of evil that they represent will continue apparently to rise up in the future regardless of our initiatives, regardless of our protests, regardless of our policies, regardless of our politics, regardless of our advances in technology or society or anything. It just keeps coming up. I'm not trying to cast doubt on or, or, or despair on all of the, the kids. I don't know if you saw this. All of the high school kids that were organizing rallies around the United States for gun control. I think it's a great idea. I'm glad that they're doing it. I'm glad that they're giving voice. But when I hear all of these like, they're going to vote and they're going to change the world. Okay, I'm old enough now to remember when everybody was saying that about me. I haven't done a whole lot with that. It's not for lack of trying, but I haven't done a whole lot with that. And I'm not going to deflate their, I'm not going to deflate their bubble by saying they can't do anything, but I am going to say that, that even if they do have voice and even if they do use their vote and even if they do use all of their influence and even if they do make advances, this is still going to be here because it's been there and it'll continue to be there. It's part of the reality that we live in, in the fact that, that our world has not been redeemed yet, even though it is redeemed. Okay? Habakkuk is writing in the in-between. And Habakkuk is for anybody that's in the in-between, which means it's for you and me. Habakkuk, whose name literally means the wrestler or the embracer, is all about grabbing on and wrestling with this really hard issue of evil before God. He even brings the complaint directly to God's door. In chapter 1, he lodges this complaint. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry out to you, look, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention keep rising up. Does that sound familiar? Here's the thing, the evil that Habakkuk is calling out God on isn't some other people group or some far off they. He's complaining about Judah. He's complaining about God's own people. We tend to call God out on the evil that we see in people that aren't like us. They over there are acting so wrong. Why don't you do something about them? Habakkuk is looking so much closer to home. And when I see what he describes, I see a world that is very, very much like my own. There is a growing crime rate in Judah. Physical violence is becoming more and more rampant. Strife and contention are growing like wildfire. The law of the land is either being misappropriated or distorted or just not enforced at all. Elevating the haves and depressing the have-nots. If I think about it, Habakkuk's experience of Judah in their near collapse is a world that I find myself not just immersed in, but sometimes participating in. I am part of the problem. 
And like then, God seems to either be unconcerned or disengaged. And, and Habakkuk, in faith and devotion to God, he's not, he loves God. He's devoted to God. He's not standing apart from this and saying, what's your problem? But in the middle of his faith, it call, he calls God, calls to God and calls out God and says, why is this being allowed by you? Because I know who you are and I believe who you are. And first, let me just say that I think that's one of the reasons why the book of Habakkuk is probably one of my favorite books in the prophets, if not my favorite. I don't know if you've read it. I hope that you do after today. I really do. If you haven't read the book of Habakkuk, it's only three chapters. It's really short, but it's packed full of stuff. And the reason I love it is Habakkuk is the book that gave me permission to question God. And that it was okay. I mean, it it happens all over the place in the Bible as well. But this is the place where it really hit home for me, is that God has, in his great mercy, not only given me the ability to draw near to him, but he has given me the ability to draw near to him and say, this makes absolutely no sense to me. I do not understand this. I am not okay with this, and I need you to sort this out for me, because I don't understand. And he doesn't turn me away, and he doesn't turn Habakkuk away. He actually draws Habakkuk further into the conversation. He answers him. And it's crucial for us to realize what a great gift and a great freedom it is that we have to bring all of our language and all of our emotion, even lament, like we talked about last week, and even questions of confusion and doubt. And God will not send us away. He is not, only, he is not going, oh, you didn't come to praise like everybody else came to praise today. Um, why don't you come back when you're in the right state of mind to worship me? Like what? No, he doesn't do that. He does quite the opposite. He draws us in further if we're willing to be drawn in. If we're willing. I mean, I, I mean there's all kinds of people that just want to sit on the sidelines and rob, like, lob rotten fruit at God, okay? And that's something completely different. But when we're actually engaged in faith and coming with these questions going, I do not understand. God does not turn us away. He pulls us in. And God brings him in and draws Habakkuk in and answers his questions very, very directly. But the answer is not what Habakkuk expects and probably not what he wants, okay? Because Habakkuk's probably expecting comfort. Habakkuk's expecting what all the other prophets get when they're like, I don't get why this is happening. And God goes, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And Habakkuk says, I don't get why this is happening. And God says, don't worry, I've got a plan but you're not going to like it. I've got this. I've got a plan in the works that is so unimaginable you wouldn't even believe it when I tell you because I'm going to tell you. And the message is this. Wrath is coming. Yay. That is not what I wanted. That is not what I was expecting. Okay, instead of reassurance, God announces an imminent attack by a very, very cruel and a very, very wicked nation that is going to set right the wickedness of God's people through a devastating judgment. That's right. God is sending Mo to be his holy avenger. What? This makes no sense. Okay, well, his name's not Mo. His name's Neb. Okay, 
Nebuchadnezzar, actually, if you really, really want to get into it. Say that five times fast. The current king of Babylon and his son, Nebuchadnezzar, who we know a little bit better. And that answer does not compute. It would be like us complaining about the problems we have today in our current society and God saying, don't worry, I'm going to resurrect Joseph Stalin and bring him in to save the day. What? This makes no sense. God's redemptive answer to the problem of evil in Habakkuk is wrath. And let me pause for a second and we're going to talk about this word wrath because I know that you probably have more negative images associated with wrath than any other attribute that gets connected with God. In fact, more often I have heard that the reason that a lot of people don't believe in God or choose not to believe in God or have walked away from God is that this whole concept of wrath doesn't make sense. And I will be the first to say, you know what? God's wrath doesn't always make sense to me. Okay, so from the pulpit, you have heard, I don't get it. All right, but I'm going to take my best stab at it today. All right, or at least we're going to start a conversation maybe. All right. And so when I use a title like Father of Wrath, I'm sure it has you doing all this kind of like interesting twisting in your seat because it really seems to denigrate who God is and elevate some abusive understanding of both earthly and heavenly father figures and and could bring up a whole host of social and psychological issues that are currently at work in our world, okay? Because wrath is a compromised thing in our world. Wrath is a selfish thing in our world. Wrath is often a terrible thing in our world. And so we say, okay, to take something that looks so flawed and so terrible and to associate it with God's name just seems not right. And we would rather not talk about God and wrath for that reason, which is exactly the reason why we need to talk about God and wrath. Because this problem that you and I have, the people to whom God revealed himself the most, Israel, and even the people to whom God revealed himself in the person of Jesus in the New Testament, don't seem to have a problem talking about God and wrath. Habakkuk doesn't have a problem with it. Moses doesn't have a problem with it. David doesn't have a problem with it. Paul doesn't have a problem with it. Jesus doesn't have a problem with it. Jesus doesn't have a problem talking about wrath. Read the Gospel of Matthew. Chapters upon chapters about, like, this is what the wrath of God is going to look like. So this problem that you and I have, the Bible doesn't seem to have. And so we're going to have to kind of figure out how those two things work together. Now, I do not want to rabbit trail us off into the deep woods of apologetics or philosophy. This is a sermon. I'm going to stick with the text, okay? But I also know that I'm going to have to highlight some assumptions that we make as 21st century Western thinking rich people that would not have been made by Habakkuk or his people or Jesus and the church that he founded in first century Judea, okay? First, there is a great need among modern believers to stop anthropomorphizing God. That is a really big word for making God human. And you say, wait a minute, he did, like he was, he was Jesus, he was human. Yes, but when I talk about God the Father, how does our understanding of God work? Does our, under, does our understanding of God start with us and saying, oh, well, I have these feelings and I have these attributes and I have these experiences, so God's must be like mine? Or do I start with God and I say, God is 
this. God is that. God is this. And so therefore, my understandings and my experiences must trickle down out of his essence. Who gets to start defining things, me or God? That idea of, that idea of anthropomorphizing, which is another big word that I'm going to trip over again if I say it again, so I'm not going to. But it's the idea of starting with me and saying God is like me, rather than saying God is God, and because we are made in his image, we are kind of like him, but he is other. He is bigger. Okay? It's basically a big word for assigning human created characteristics and definitions to God, who is neither created nor defined. We like to categorize things. This is not a new thing. Okay, the first thing that God has Adam do in Genesis is gather all the organisms on the earth together and name them. And by naming them, he is the human caretaker is categorizing and understanding and defining and ultimately gaining some mastery over the rest of creation. It's what God wants him to do. But when Moses later tries the same thing with God in Exodus, what name will I give the people when they ask what God sent you to us? God refuses to actually name himself. Okay, do do you catch that? This, what we have come to know as the name of God isn't really a name at all. God is saying, I am not a being with limits or distinctions or categories. I am not even a being in the sense that creation or even humanity is a being. I am simply the fullness of what it means to be. And so my name is I am. You can't reduce me any further than that. Sorry. So when they're asking you who sent you, it's simply the God who is. I am has sent me. You can't reduce me or categorize me or define me or limit me or section me off any better than that. Because I don't have limits. Because I can't be contained. That's as close as we'll ever get to a definition of God, and that's a really good thing because the word define literally means to set as finite or to set the limits of. If I could define God, he would not be worthy of being God anymore because he would no longer be limitless. And that also means that I can't break God out into pieces. And we do this all the time when we ask the question of why is the God of the Old Testament always so grumpy and the God of the New Testament so hippie? I hear that a lot. And we assume, first off, that the attributes we assign to God, like God is love, God is just, God is merciful, God is eternal, that, that we can under, first off, that we can understand the fullness of what that means. And we can't. I can look at the very, very, very best of what I imagine love to be. The very best, okay? If I could even define that in words for you, I could go on and on and on and on. And when I had finally exhausted myself of that and say, okay, that's my very, that is my very, very best understanding. What I end up with is God is like that, but so much more, right? That's where we end up on all of it. God's like that, but he's so much more. 
And the same is true of what I know of wrath. You asked me what I would want to do if someone intentionally with ill will came to harm or abuse or otherwise ruin my wife. Or one of my kids. How about Emery? You imagine me if somebody was coming to harm my baby. What would I be like if you said murderous? You are correct. Absolutely, unequivocally, unreservedly murderous. Get out of my way. Now, yeah, and, and woe to you if you try to stop me, by the way. Okay, and just put that in there. Now, I have to take all of that righteous indignation moved to action in a situation like that and say, okay, I cannot define what wrath looks like exactly in God. What I know is that it would be like that. But much more uncomplicated, much more uncompromised, and much more unhindered by any of my human faults. And if I do that, then I also have to jettison all of my assumptions that these attributes like wrath and love and mercy and justice, things that seem to be opposing poles in my heart, like I can't, I can't love somebody and be wrathful toward them, okay? Like those things might be in contention with me, but those things aren't contention within God. Somehow. I mean, this is, this is part of what makes him God. They are not in contention. He doesn't turn off the mercy and turn on the wrath and then switch back again later. He doesn't divide himself out like that. It's not who he is. And, and he doesn't sit like I do wondering which response is best and how much. God's intellect and his essence and his eternity are all wrapped up together. His ability to know and to act and have the best possible outcome mapped out are instantaneous and already in motion and happening before I was even around. And how he does that, I have no idea. Okay? I do not know. But again, that is the essence of him being God and not a being like me, not like us. And I am left saying all of this ultimately in faith. I hope you realize that, especially about the concept that God can use calamity and destruction, something that seems like a really big detour from the restoration and reconciliation of all things that he has promised us as a redemptive and transformative instrument to that very effect. I mean, like actually heading toward restoration and redemption and reconciliation. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I have to say that in faith, but that is what the wrath of God is. It is destruction as an effect used in the name of redemption, of actually setting things right. It is the wrecking ball before the foundation is built upon. And can we, trust a, can we trust a God that is both the builder and the wrecking ball? Can we do that? That's what faith is. That's what faith is for Habakkuk. 
And we buck against that idea really hard because we have thousands of examples of that idea being used by people in the name of God to unleash unspeakable horror on the world. I understand that. And God says, yep, that is absolutely wrong. When Habakkuk questions God again behind the wisdom of using the seemingly greater evil of Babylon to take on the evil that's in Judah, God responds with this really pivotal verse in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk, there is still more on the horizon. The story is not over. It begs for resolution, and it will come. If it seems long in coming, don't lose heart. Don't give up on waiting for it. Look at the prideful and the puffed up. Their unrighteous acts are going to be their undoing, but the righteous will live by faith. And there's something very, very telling about the different starting points between the works that I've read by prominent modern atheists and the works that I read by both modern and ancient theologians. This may seem like a detour, but it's not. Just want you to think about this for a second. Nicole and I were um, looking at a bookstore. We were over in Monroe's Books, okay? And I, I, uh, I have... I had not, it had been a long time since I'd read anything out of Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. But it was on the shelf, and while we were thumbing around, I picked it up and kind of looked through the introduction again. And what amazed me, this is just one of many examples, is, is how he starts off right at the beginning showing all of his cards about how convinced he is that he knows exactly the idea of who or what God is supposed to be. And then the whole rest of the book is the progression of him taking on arguments as to why he doesn't believe in God. And why only idiots believe in God, basically. But he starts out with this so sure understanding of, like, I know exactly the idea of who God is and exactly what God is about. And that's why he can't exist. He doesn't believe. He doesn't believe. He doesn't exist. And anybody who would believe this is foolish. And my answer would be, yeah, that's foolish. Because when I look at people that, 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 are actual theologians. When I look at, whether new or old, like Henry Nowen, or Thomas Aquinas, or St. John of the Cross, or Augustine, or Maximus the Confessor, I mean, some of these names you may not even know, okay, but I mean like old, 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 like 4th century, 3rd century people. You want to know where they start? They start in the exact opposite position. They are fully convinced that they do not know the fullness of who God is. That they can't know the fullness of who God is. And that is what fuels their belief. Is the, is the wondrousness, the, the fullness, the, the, the capacity of God being so large and so powerful and so big that it's beyond them. How could I not believe in something that I could spend my whole life exhausting every brain cell I have on and only scratching the surface. That's faith. And that's righteousness. And that's exactly God's word to Habakkuk about faith and righteousness. It's to trust in God even when he seems absent and especially when it seems like justice and righteousness as we understand it are being detoured and deferred from where it should go in our lives. And that is the backbone of the faithful and righteous life. And that assurance gets backed up even further in 2.20, another verse that we know well but don't often have context for. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I have 
confession time. The song that we sing that uses this scripture, the Lord is in his hold. I have words in my mind that are not those words because I primarily used that song to get kids in youth ministry to be quiet before the devotional talk. The youth leader is going to be talking. Will all of you please be quiet? Be quiet, be quiet. I'm trying to talk now. No context. Because what it actually functions as is the final word in a series of pronouncements against those who live and act as if God's potency and his awareness are limited or distanced from our world. Is God still present in our situations? Does he still have control over the world? Does he still have control over the inhabitants of the world? Habakkuk's answer from God is a resounding yes. In the face of the things that we're familiar with, in the face of the things that we're even participants in that are evil, dishonesty, exploitation, running roughshod over each other, surrendering our morals to sensual or controlling elements, and most of all, participating in idolatry, fashioning the box to try and stuff the unlimited, undefinable I am inside. All of those things, God is indeed aware of it. He is indeed present, and he is indeed acting perfectly to both protect what he holds dear and destroy the things that would challenge his sovereignty. And that's what that picture in Habakkuk 3 is all about. About God, he's in the holy temple and then he decides to stand up and move in. And everything starts going wild. Right? Did you listen to some of the imagery? Mountains splitting. Seas writhing. Rivers shaking. He hadn't even done anything yet. All he did was stand up and look around. Sun and he, he uncovers the bow. He hasn't even fired an arrow yet. And the sun and moon are like, whoa, whoa. I, we, we'll just we'll leave now. We don't want to get in your way. Okay? I mean, that, that is not the image of a powerless God wringing his hands going, gosh, I just don't know what to do about my people. It is also not the image of a God who just, you know, is, is like flying off the handle for no reason. It's a God who's like, no, no more. I'm stepping in and I'm going to make this right. Which brings us around to the question, what on earth does this have to do with Easter? Because this is an Easter sermon or a Palm Sunday sermon, to be more accurate. Palm Sunday, where the crowds of Jesus' followers had lined the streets of Jerusalem Waving branches, throwing their coats on the ground in a makeshift red carpet run for Jesus and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of I am. Ready to see God begin to enact his wrath against the enemies of his beloved, his people in the way that they assumed he would as their Messiah. They had read Habakkuk's song in our reading this morning. My guts were turning over in on themselves as I considered God's words, the prophet says. I would have been right there with them. Considering all the lengths God would go to in order to redeem his people, even wrath, using the Babylonians to humble Israel, then overthrowing Babylon to humble them and rescue Israel. Unthinkable, but surely the father of wrath, that's how he works now. 
He's humbled us, Israel, under the Greeks. And then the Maccabees came and overthrew them. Now the Romans have us under their boots. Surely the Father of wrath is here with his anointed one, Jesus, ready to unsheathe that bow one more time, split the rivers and the mountains, bring the thunder down on our oppressors. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Woo! Yeah! But we know how that story is going to end, right? Those hosannas are quickly going to turn to crucify him off the lips of the same crowd when Jesus refuses to bring the wrath the way that we expect him to. But do we understand why it happens? Habakkuk does. His guts are turning over both in excitement and fear because he realizes how easy it is for us to become Babylonians. For us to become puffed up and prideful, thinking that wrath is for other people and restoration is for us. Habakkuk knows two transforming things about God's wrath. First, God is coming to take down his enemies. And second, we have met the enemy and a lot of times it's us. It's me. I mean, think about the, think about the passage that Diane used this morning out of Romans. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were Sinners. There's another passage that he uses in Ephesians. While we were objects of wrath. We were by nature objects of wrath. And God made us his children. Wrath and mercy. Right there together. Right in the same sentence. In faith, God somehow is not divided between his justice in conquering me set up to be his enemy, and restoring and protecting me, his beloved child. In wrath, he remembers mercy. As one enemy turned disciple puts it, again, Paul, this is how God demonstrated his unequaled love for you and me. While we were by nature objects of his wrath, his anointed one died on our behalf to bring our salvation. Easter is the greatest mystery the greatest mysterious example of God's wrath. God refusing to sit back and let this continue any longer, refusing to let our own destruction take us any longer. And so he does the unthinkable. Behold, I am working a work in you that you would not believe, even if I told you about it. The anointed one will fulfill the balancing of God's wrath and mercy by being wrath and mercy united on the cross and rising up out of the grave. I referenced Augustine a while back and he would write this about God's purposes in our world. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way that they are. Such is our hope in God, even in the complexities of understanding something like his wrath. Like I said, God spoke to Habakkuk as someone who was living in the meantime. 
living in the in-between of the promises made and the promises fulfilled. And, and Habakkuk is writing to you and me who live in the meantime, between God's proclamation and its fulfillment. We live between resurrection past and resurrection future. Where the promise that God proclaimed in Christ is awaiting its fullness to be realized in all the earth and in us. And sometimes it feels like it is one big detour. Habakkuk, the wrestler, is not the same after his encounter with God. He moves from questions to peace. He moves from how can this be to I will wait patiently for God to work things out and I will rejoice in him. Even though I may, I may never see the blossoming or the budding of those promises in my lifetime. The fig tree may not bud. There may be no crops in the fields, but I will praise him anyway. And I think that may be the most concrete statement of faith in the entire Old Testament. And it's a faith that we get called to live by as well. Our God is not compromised. He is not contained. He is not categorized and he is not held in check. And so we live and we celebrate in our waiting. Even if that is waiting for the completion of his wrath. Amen.